Take your copy of God's Word, your Bible, and turn to Matthew chapter 21. One of these exceptionally difficult passages to preach, not because it's difficult to explain, but difficult because you all know it. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1, says God's word for you. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Sorry, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Uh, most of the crowd sped, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the king, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you've spoken to us in the reading of your scriptures. Thank you that we can hear your voice there. We ask now that you would speak to us in the preaching of your scriptures, that we might hear your voice there, for Christ's sake. Amen. I suspect that for many of us, there's probably kind of no greater skill set or attribute that we can kind of marvel at and appreciate than the ability to plan in such a complex and elegant fashion that it can involve so many other people and still be executed without a flaw. Right, the ability to, to kind of think so conceptually and to be so wise and to be so intelligent and to be so clever, to be able to plan and to maneuver, to be stri- strategic with people. Strategy is so unbelievably complicated when it involves people. I read a quote the other day somebody sent me as a little joke of a forest ranger up in uh, Yosemite uh, Park, the state park up there, 
uh, talking with somebody about kind of the, the problem they're having with bears and why they don't do a better job taking care of it. And the park ranger said, you see, the problem is, is there's a tremendous overlap between the intelligence of the smartest of bears and the intelligence of the stupidest of tourists. How on earth are you supposed to plan when people are involved? And honestly, it just it mystifies me when you encounter somebody that's able to plan just the simplest of things and be able to execute it with all of the kind of quirky ways that people behave. Uh, I think out of all of the things in chapter 21, the triumphal entry here, that kind of melt my brain, make my head explode, is to marvel at how just amazingly wise Jesus is in his ability, uh, interestingly here, not supernaturally. He's, he's not by divine fiat, you know, speaking, he's the agent of creation, he's not kind of speaking things into happening the way that they are. He could. He's God. But instead, through knowledge of the scriptures, Knowledge of the world around him, knowledge of people, intense wisdom, filled by the Spirit of God, executing the most shocking and sophisticated plan in human history. My goal today is we looked for, at a passage that, again, many of you have read dozens of times, perhaps hundreds of times, is not to perhaps tell you everything you've heard before is wrong in understanding these things, but instead to just take for a moment the time that we have to just marvel at how tremendous Jesus is. You see, that's what Matthew's been doing from the very beginning of the book. You remember from the very introduction, he's been kind of challenging uh, the Jews around and challenging those that would have been reading his letter to say, you've been expecting a king. That's, that's what we've been expecting all along. We've known God has spoken it all throughout uh, his Old Testament that he would send a king. We already read one of those great passages in Zechariah chapter 9. He's going to send his king. That that was never up for negotiation. All the Jews would have known that. And in fact, this king's going to be something so incredibly special. He's going to be like David, except greater, which is pretty phenomenal. David, one of the greatest kings planet Earth had ever seen at that point. He's going to be bigger than David. He's going to be greater than David. He's going to be more successful than David. What does that even mean? But then something even kind of more spectacular is that he's going to be not just the king, but he's going to be anointed, God's anointed one. He's going to have God's blessing and anointing in the spirit in a way that no one has. So much so even a title gets applied to him. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. And by the time Matthew is writing, by the time Jesus shows up, really all the Jews are looking forward to this king, but they're looking forward to the one who will show up, you know, get the the mighty sword of God and lop the heads off of all the Romans and give them back Jerusalem and all of the lands. They're looking for a, really a soldier king and they get one. In fact, they get the greatest soldier king of all time. He's just totally not what they expect. 
And Matthew's gospel from kind of start to finish is challenging all of their presuppositions and challenging all of our presuppositions to think about the king the way that he is and not the way that we are. Because you see, the Spirit of God is so wise that he knows uh, how we are as readers. We love to read ourselves into the text. Right? We always read these stories where we're part of the figures and we're part of the landscape and part of the scenery. And in fact, actually, as most Christians, we tend to honestly read ourselves as the heroes a lot of times, which is part of the problem with our Bible reading, but that's a different sermon for a different day. Instead, what Matthew is doing is challenging us not to think about King Jesus by our own terms, not thinking about the king that we want, but to think about the king that Jesus is. He's a different kind of king. He's concerned with the heart, not just the hands. He's a different kind of king. He doesn't take taxes the way that everyone else does. In fact, he demands all of you instead. It's an interesting deal. Uh, He gives generously instead of using your resources uh, for his own benefit and for his own blessing. He blesses you over and above. He's a different kind of king. In chapter 21, we hear of his wisdom in a way that is shocking, I guess. I mean, we think about the political landscape in America today. We don't tend to, I guess, if we took a poll of your average American and say, give us three attributes that describe politicians, I'm not sure how high wisdom would rank in the list. Here in chapter 21, King Jesus shows up, and it's just shocking wisdom. This is the end, right? It's the end of the story. It's the end of his ministry. He's coming into Jerusalem to die. At this point, he knows what's going on. In fact, the previous chapter, he's told them that he's going to Jerusalem to die. He's told them how he's going to die. He's going to the cross, a shameful way to die that only criminals would be punished with. But that's what's going to happen. And as he gets near, he gets outside of Jerusalem in a town just across the way. Stops with the disciples. There's a crowd with him at this point in his ministry. He's been generating a crowd and not sending them away as he did the first half of his ministry. He stops and interrupts them and says, okay, uh, time out. We're going to do something a little different here. And it would have been very interesting. I mean, all sorts of, I wonder what Jesus is up to. He periodically did this. He would uh, interrupt their activities for a teachable moment. This, however, is a different kind of teachable moment. Gives them uh, information. We don't know how he has this. Is this, again, divine prophecy? It could be. We don't know. Does he actually know the people in the village that own the donkey? Could be. We don't know. But either way, Jesus pauses them and says to the disciples, you need to go get this donkey and her colt and bring them to me. In many situations, that would be called theft. Right? If I were to you know, look at my deacons and say, there's a guy over that way who owns a bright yellow lotus, Elise. I'd like to drive it for a week. You need to go get it. Uh, that's Grand Theft Auto. The deacons are going to jail, and I as well, for conspiracy, right? Jesus, interestingly, not stealing here, instead gives them explanation as to what's going to happen. When you get there, uh, they're going to ask about it, obviously. You're not just going to take their stuff. Verse 3, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, the Lord needs them. And in English, we read that and go, well, yeah, okay, cool, great, let's motor on. 
problem is, is that this sentence is one of those sentences that for the uh, early Greek reader, those that would have read the original re- version of this would have been like a kind of a, a slap in the face to catch their attention. You know, the way that Greek works, you know, the way English works is you modify kind of nouns with either the or a, right? It's either the Lord or a Lord, but we're kind of constantly delineating those two. Greek, it doesn't work that way. You don't actually have to do that. There's only one article and you only add it in occasionally. Why are you talking about grammar this minute? Well, because in this section, Jesus clearly specifies that this is a donkey that belongs to the one and only Lord. You think, well, that, that's, I mean, neat and all. Well, no, actually, it's really significant because Matthew does not talk about Jesus that way. In fact, actually, when he uses that word Lord, he almost never uses uh, the descriptor article in the front to kind of catch your ear and to catch your eye that Jesus is doing something special. You see, the Greek reader in this, English reader, we just hear it and think, okay, this is neat and all. The Greek reader that would have read this, their early church, would have understood that when Jesus is saying the Lord needs them, he's not here saying the master needs them. He's not here saying that the teacher needs them. He's not here saying the authority needs them. They would have understood that he is, without a shadow of a doubt, saying God needs them. Because what he's doing is he's telling them who he is. This is a statement of self-description. This is a statement of identity. He's peeling back the curtain and giving us a glimpse as to who he is in heaven. He is not simply a man standing inside time and space and matter and energy. He is that, but he's not just that. Because he is God Almighty, maker of of heaven and earth. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the agent of creation. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lord of life. His statement to them is not just simply a a kind of, oh, by the way, we're going to borrow your donkey. It's the kind of statement that when they come to take your donkey, you go with the donkey because you want to find out who it is the donkey is going to serve. Jesus is the Lord of life. And it's amazing how, again, it's interesting really, if you look at the history of theology in this great nation, that is one of the primary doctrines that has been kind of Uh, attacked over and over and over and over and over again. We live in a country that is, by and large, very comfortable with the idea of Jesus as long as he's a man just like me. I mean, he's better than me, he's smarter than me, he's nicer than me, right? He didn't get hangry like I do, but he's, he's just like me. The problem is that's not what Jesus says he is. I mean, you may think that he's a man just like me. That's not what Jesus says he is. He's the Lord of life. And so when he gives truth, it's not just, oh, uh, nice teachings. 
Is this not some moral guidebook? It's the Lord of life. The Lord needs them. So they go, and the disciples go. They ask for the donkey, they ask for the colt, and they bring them back. Matthew here chimes this in at this point. We find out from one of the other gospel writers that the beautiful part of this, the disciples have no idea. They do not get this until after the resurrection. This is added in here so that we, the reader, understand the the reason behind it. The disciples had no idea. They do not catch it in the moment. They understand that Jesus wants a donkey, therefore Jesus gets a donkey, and they go do that. Jesus explains why this is, though, so that it would fulfill what was spoken in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. The thing that we kind of oftentimes, again, mistake when we read this, again, as modern readers, we sometimes miss the kind of emotional and, and cultural significance of what's taking place in the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is a coronation event. Everyone in the community understood it was a coronation The same way that in just a matter of months ago, we had uh, a big kind of shindig in D.C. where you have the justice come out and a man puts his hand on a book and he raises his hand, he takes a vow, and we inaugurate a new president. This is the way that a king was crowned. They know that. That's actually kind of the foundational point of what's taking place is all of the Jews in the region have rallied together and they finally are proclaiming Jesus as king. Now you're going to see their their values kind of misalign with his and there's a pretty big divorce in just a matter of days. But they're trying to, to understand and kind of capture this is the king of the Jews. But what kind of king is he? Interestingly, it says a lot about what kind of king he is. Do they, do they go to the next town over and get you know, the, the great chariot? Now, again, we, we don't think of the significance of chariots, but if you know anything about kind of ancient history, chariots never lost. I mean, Old Testament, certainly, if you had chariots, you always won. I mean, there's really kind of, as best we can tell from history that we have documented from that time, there was only one nation that could regularly beat chariots, and that nation was Israel, because God fought for them. You didn't beat chariots, they were like tanks. It'd be the, the kind of version today of the, the M1 Abram tank or something, Do you go get a tank. The king's going to ride in in a tank, How, what an entrance that'll be, right? Sitting up on top of the tank, maybe riding the barrel, that would be just, ooh, what an image that would be, right? Or perhaps, I guess, in today's standards, we get, you know, a helicopter, a Black Hawk helicopter, all the missiles, you know, the gun decks out and everything. I remember growing up as a kid here and when they opened the Bank of America Tower downtown and watching the special forces repel off the side of the tower. Like, that is an entrance. You know, that's how you open a building right there. 60 stories up. Pew! 
down the side. Man, it made my stomach flip just from the, watching them be so high. What kind of king is ours? Is he, is he gonna, what is he going to ride on? Is he going to ride a, maybe a lion? That would be awesome. I mean, what a, again, an image that would be the king just holding on to the mane of the lion. Ah, it's roaring. No, instead, what do they get? By his own command, the weakest, puniest, useful only for labor, least impressive animal that he can ride. They do not go get a war horse. They do not go get a battle stallion. They go find for him, by his own command, a creature of peace so that the prince of peace would have a ride that matches his ministry. You see, he's identifying again for him, his people there. He's telling them who he is, what kind of king he's going to be. It's funny, all of the masses are there. Ah, it's king, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's the king, it's the king. It's like, you should have figured it out, Jews. He's not riding a battle stallion. He doesn't have a sword on his hip. He's not coming in to be victorious by destroying all of his enemies. At this point, he's coming in to be victorious by dying. He's coming in to purchase peace, not through their bloodshed, but through his bloodshed. He's coming to purchase peace, not by the eradication of his enemies, but by the extermination of himself. He's the Prince of Peace. I love thinking about this one too because you think about Jesus designed for himself. I mean, he could have picked anything. Granted, he knows the Old Testament so well, he's fulfilling prophecy. He could have picked anything, but he picks literally the lowest and and kind of most meek sort of way in. And I love thinking about how differently that would look if we got to kind of pick our own entrance music, pick our own entrance, you know, vehicle. They used to do that in baseball, and I loved it. It was the best when they let the, the baseball players pick their own entrance music when they went up to bat and got to play just the most ridiculous music or whatever it was. You see, I think it'd be interesting because so many American Christians today, you know, most of us, would pick things that make us look good and would pick things that make us feel special, and would pick things that make us feel powerful, and feel beautiful, and feel smart, and feel skinny, and feel great. And interestingly, Jesus goes low. Picks a donkey to teach us a lesson in humility and peace. Now, again, the disciples don't get it. Matthew then inserts it here so that we understand. Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus has, I suspect at this point, I suspect he has the entire Old Testament memorized word for word. He had started when he was a very young boy. We know that. We know that by the time he was a preteen, he already understood the scriptures better than their greatest scholars. Uh, we understood that he spent so much time in the temple or in the synagogue, I mean, memorizing the scriptures that uh, when his parents lose him, he's not disrespectful. He's like, you should literally know where I hang out. 
right? I don't go down to the skate park and skateboard. I go to the synagogue or the temple or the tabernacle or whatever. I go memorize the Bible. That's what I do. You should know that. They miss, they forget. So here he's fulfilling a prophecy that was given hundreds of years prior. And as I mentioned in the reading of Zechariah chapter 9, the prophecy that he's fulfilling is a shocking prophecy. Because what it is is the portrait of the king of kings, the God's king coming to rule and reign inside creation. And it's this kind of weaving and blending of all of the the different parts of his ministry and reign into one. I mean, he's quoting verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and Having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey, fulfilling, again, prophecy hundreds of years old. The next verse, though, is just, again, it it changes. You understand what kind of king this is. Right now, he's this king of peace, but his prophecy isn't done, and his reign isn't done, and his ministry isn't done. I will cut off the chariot. From Ephraim, I will destroy the enemies of God. I will cut off the war horse from Jerusalem. I'm going to destroy the enemies of God. In fact, the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule will be from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. And in fact, even so much so, the next verse 11 there in Zechariah, I will set your prisoners free because of the blood of my covenant. What a statement. And I love, again, you get to see how wise King Jesus is that the disciples, who were very, very clever men, I mean, they're uneducated by the world standards, but very clever men, they just don't, they don't get it. But he does. They don't understand. This is the prophesied one, the prophesied king, the one that's been explained all the way back from Genesis 3. He's here, the Lord of life. So he's Lord, he is the the Prince of Peace, he's prophesied. Uh, Interestingly, the crowd takes up a new kind of uh, addition to this. They bring the donkey to Jesus, the colt to Jesus there in verse 7, and uh, there's no saddle, all right? It's... um, you know, not intended to be ridden. At this point, we get the colt is probably of, of age. We know he's never been ridden, but he's at the age where he would first kind of begun to be broken in. That's how these animals were used. And so what do they do? There's no saddle, so they just take the you know, cloaks off of their backs and lay them on the back of the animal, and then Jesus rides in on that. And as I said, the Jews understand. They get it. They know what's taking place. We have a coronation event of King Jesus. So what do they do? Well, they treat royalty the way that royalty demands. Verse 8, the crowd then begins to take their clothes off and put them on the road so that even the donkey doesn't have to walk on the road. walks on the clothes of people instead. Others cut branches from the trees. This, you get your palm branches, and they, some spread them on the road, and others begin to wave them. And then verse 9, they quote Psalm 118. The psalm, again, here, capturing the reign of God. 
What does God's reign look like? Well, Hosanna, our helper, is here. Who is it? Well, he is the son of David. This is the king that God promised from the very beginning. Even the Jews are saying it. He's the Messiah, the fulfillment of everything that is in the Old Testament. He is the king of kings. At this point, I love to think about just kind of pondering what the disciples' response would have been like. You know, what their experience would have been like. Because you remember that the ministry of Jesus follows a very particular flow. He begins to add them on at the beginning. And he goes around and he teaches. And he does miracles to confirm his teaching. And he gets rid of the crowds more or less everywhere. When he heals people, he tells them to go away and be quiet. And when a great crowd gets together, he feeds them, and then he tells them to go away. Sometimes he goes across the lake so they can't follow him. They still try to, but his entire ministry is really one of trying to to get rid of people. And it's my favorite part of those books and how to pastor like Jesus. Get rid of people. All right, I can do that. I like it. But after ministering for a number of years, it finally begins to click in the disciples' minds and in their hearts that this Jesus isn't just a good teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He is God himself. And once they understand that, that's when everything changes. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, and he heads to Jerusalem at all costs. And so for the disciples, for at this point, three years they've been just under been with Jesus watching him get rid of people, watching him kind of minister to them, bless them, encourage them, but then leave them so that a giant crowd could not be formed. And then shockingly, this happens. Again, not just a little crowd. Two full towns have emptied out at this point to come together for a coronation event. In fact, actually, you get the impression that part of Jerusalem even comes out. So at this point, two full towns and part of a city have emptied out to come crown the king of the Jews uh, to rejoice and to celebrate. And you have to think the disciples are standing there going, what's going on? This Messiah that we've been following has been trying to get rid of the crowds, but now not only is he tolerating them, this is key, He's encouraging them. There's a significance. He actually waits for the donkey to get back. He waits for the people to get there. He waits until the people amass into this kind of large, just boiling mob. Because this king is the Lord of wisdom. He has a perfect plan. He knows exactly what he's going to do. Not all the gospel writers record the same kind of flow of the day. Matthew here jumps from Sunday evening in verses 10 and 11, I mean Sunday afternoon in verses 10 and 11 to Monday, probably mid-morning in verse 12. But we know actually what takes place in between those two things. The Lord of life, King Jesus, in his great kind of 
coronation event on earth, the Jews proclaiming him to be the king of the Jews, verse 10, enters into Jerusalem. This would be kind of, again, a, a bit of an inconvenient reality for most of the people. Because they would have known this is really awkward, right? This is one of those moments where it's like, what's going to happen? This is uncomfortable. The guy who was just crowned king of the Jews outside is showing up into Jerusalem, which is where the king of the Jews reigns. Shows up into his capital, which would be his temple and his palace. What's he going to do with that? Is he going to get rid of the Romans? Like, is he going to throw them out? Is he going to evict them? That's what they're expecting. It's his town. This is where the king reigns. That's actually why the crowd at this point is so excited and why verse uh, 10 is so interesting uh, and so significant. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Everybody's out. And they're asking this question, who is this? What's going on? Now, they know who Jesus is. I imagine almost everybody in Jerusalem at this point knows exactly who he is. This is a loaded question, though, of not just is this Jesus, but is this Jesus the king? Is the king of the Jews, is the Messiah, is the final king finally here? And the crowds give an interesting answer. It's it's a good answer, but it's a non-answer, isn't it? This is the prophet, Jesus. It's not a wrong answer. He's from Nazareth, Galilee. (laughs) It's not a full answer. They're not actually even convinced themselves. Which is, again, a little bit of foreshadowing. Good literature has good foreshadowing because we know what happens. Jesus comes in, right? Goes to the temple and goes home. And you, you know how kind of the mob works. They're like, ah, we're ready for, go kill the Romans, ah. Why are you going home? What's happening? We're so confused. What's taking place? Because Jesus is doing something in verse, uh, verses 1 through 11 with this kind of coronation event. He is manufacturing his own situation. Remember, when the Gospels are very clear about this, when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to the cross because he wishes to be there. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies on the cross because he wishes to do so. He's very clear. No one takes the life of the Son. The Son gives it up willingly. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, is Jesus making sure he makes it to the cross. Because what he's done is he's brought a mob with him that in just a matter of days are going to be betraying him. Who do you think it is that's calling for the other criminals to be set free? It's these people. Who do you think it is that's crying out, we don't want Jesus. We want the other murderers. Let them go. It's these people. Who do you think are the people that are are raising the intensity and the fervor inside Jerusalem so much so that the the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees are like, we got to do it now. Like, we can't let Jesus live any longer. We got to get him this week. Who on earth tries to commit murder on Passover week? They did. Why? Because he forced their hand. Because he's so wise, he knew what victory looked like. He's going to make sure it happened. He raises the stakes, he accelerates their timeline, he forces the issue. 
And you think, well, I mean, it seems a bit of an odd plan. Yes, that's the point. Isaiah 55, God's ways are higher than your ways. And what we would think of, we would match most of us just like the Jews. We want him to come in and immediately be victorious. Instead, what does he do? He immediately comes in to die. That's what he does this week. The rest of the book is the the execution of the Lord of life. Everything he goes goes through from Sunday afternoon all the way through his death and then resurrection. Because he's not the kind of king that you or I would be. He's the kind of king that God would be. He's the kind of king that saves you and me. You see, that's actually what's happening here is Jesus is making sure that salvation takes place. And he's using the fullness of his wisdom, the fullness of his power, his creativity, to accomplish the salvation that he would bring for his people. You confessed it just a little bit ago. I know a lot of times these confessions were so busy trying not to choke on the words like I did uh, that sometimes you don't really actually read them that carefully. How does Christ execute the office of a king? In calling out of the world of people to himself? And giving those people officers, laws, censures by which he governs them visibly. He executes the office of a king in giving grace to his elect and rewarding their obedience. How generous he is. In correcting for our sins. Preserving, supporting them under temptations and sufferings. And I think that next one is one that we tend to skip over a little bit, isn't it? Christ executes the office of a king in restraining and overcoming all of our enemies. And one of the other parts of the catechism says in in defeating both uh, his and our enemies. That's what chapter 21 is. It's Jesus being victorious over our enemies and making sure he goes to the cross. See, the beautiful thing is while here the Jews are worshiping him, they're worshiping him incompletely. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the son of David. Uh, They're only half right because they think he's an earthly king. We have this great privilege having the fullness of Scripture and the fullness of Revelation to not be half right but to be whole right. To meditate on the beauty and glory of our King. The one who saves you. The one who watches over you. The one who preserves you. The one who fights for you. The one who's defeated death for you. The one who is victorious over hell for you. The Prince of Peace who gives you his peace. You can know him. That's why this table to me is so unbelievably significant. That as we go to the meal in just a second, this isn't a king who's decided to kind of rule and reign and and cast off the little ones, right? The peons, the the unimportant people. Too many politicians, we, we hear stories like that, right? They come into power and they forget about all the people that elected them or things like that. 
our king instead feasts with us, but not simply on food, but on his very self, that we might commune with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your generosity to us. It is undeserved. We ask that you would give us a mind that contemplates the beauty of Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.